are so thankful for your victory. And Father, we're thankful not only for the victory of Jesus and, and the demonstration of his victory over sin and death and hell and his own death, burial, and resurrection, but that you found a way to share that victory with men and women like us. And we thank you, Lord, for how rich you have made us in your Son. We thank you for the hope, the sense of victory, Lord, the joy, the confidence that is ours that we would never otherwise know. Thank you for defeating all of the great enemies within our life. We thank you, Lord, for all of the different ways that you give us to worship you. And we want every bit of our lives to ascribe worth to you. Not only our singing, Lord, as thankful as we are for that and indescribably thankful, but we want it also to be coupled with an obedient life and a life that brings you pleasure and is a sweet incense unto you, Lord. And so we pray that you'd use your word tonight to continue to fashion our lives and, and to continue to cut away from our lives the things that don't belong in them, build into our lives through your word the things that we so desperately need to have built in and that can only come by your Spirit through your Word. And we ask for that work of your Spirit tonight in each one of our lives. Help us to hear something, Lord, this evening, something that we know all of the, the volume of the book testifies of Jesus. All of it is inspired. But speak to us, Lord, personally uh, from what we study this evening into our relationship with you and your call upon our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good evening. Jeremiah chapter 33, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we come tonight to Jeremiah chapter 33. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave to them. They'll put one in your hand. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. As we start things out tonight, I just, um, I just want to say that I uh, commend each of you that are here this evening for coming out on uh, a Sunday evenings and uh, being willing and eager to learn the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation and to come out even in the study of uh, something, that, a book that is as repetitive as the book of Jeremiah is. I don't know if you know it or not, but a literacy concerning the Bible in general is absolutely plunging off of a cliff uh, among uh, Christians in general in the United States of America. Almost nobody is teaching the Old Testament anymore. It's a very small percentage. There are texts that are taken here and there out of Isaiah or the Psalms and so forth, but to learn and understand the Old Testament, this is disappearing. And it's disappearing in my generation. It's disappearing in, uh, in the span of uh, just one lifetime. And I, I was talking with a pastor this week, and it's so disheartening to pastors right now who teach the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and to watch this uh, group of people, the, the, the number that have a, a hunger for God 
and a desire to know the whole Bible uh, diminishing in the way uh, that it is. And I would contend, as I was talking with him, and the importance of it, no matter how many people come or they don't come, I don't think you can ever understand Calvary. I don't think you can, or you can ever even scratch the surface in terms of appreciation, in terms of the, of the death of Jesus Christ upon uh, the cross for our sins, independent of the Old Testament. It'll be, it, it will lack a nuance. It will lack a depth that comes only with understanding the prophetic Scriptures that looked ahead to it. It's so important to know the entire Bible. You might have noticed through the years that I never thank you for coming to church. I don't want to pander to you. And I would never, ever want to develop that kind of weakness in your life or in my own life as a Christian, that this is something that, is, that we get praised for, something that we get thanked for, that we came uh, to church. He is due this. He is worthy of this. I read a, in a church digest recently and uh, it wasn't something that they were pulling out somewhere. It was, I was just looking at the church services that were being offered and the different churches and so forth in this particular community as it was in, in the newspaper. And they had a church within the community that now has a 5 p.m. church service. Uh, no Sunday mornings, uh, no Sunday evening. It's 5 p.m. And they explained their rationale. And basically the idea was this. We know you're busy. We know your kids are busy, and we know that this might be the most convenient time in the whole weekend for maybe you to shoehorn God in to some one-hour block in a weekend, even as a child of God, and so we've put it there. And, they, and people don't even know what they're saying about Christians to put that kind of a thing forward, how far away we are from what the Bible calls us to be as Christians when this becomes the kind of ploys that are used in order to draw people into church or to come and experience Him for one uh, hour in their busy lives on Facebook and all of the technology that they're on and the endless hours of television. And somehow it's a sacrifice to come and worship God twice in one week. Barna came out. This last couple of weeks, he does all the polling for Christians and so forth, and they were talking about um, the uh, polling now, the commitment of Christians in the United States of America uh, to church attendance. And, uh, and they were asked, uh, the question was asked, uh, do you attend church uh, regularly? And the statistics came in about what they've been traditionally. Uh, but somebody unpacked it and realized that what has happened in just the last 20 years is that 20 years ago to ask a Christian, do you attend church regularly, meant they attended church at least twice a week. Now the definition of attending church regularly is once and maybe twice a month, and that's considered to be acceptable, regular church uh, attendance. I was listening to a podcast this week. And there was this young man who was uh, put out a, a seven-point kind of thing, uh, uh, announcement to the church as a whole in the United States 
and uh, the things that we have to realize in order to uh, still get people to come into church or to come uh, in, into the, uh, the doors of a church. And one of the things at the top of his list was he declared that churches that have made uh, the focus of their church a teaching pulpit, where teaching the Bible is one of the main uh, 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 focuses of that church, that those churches in the United States of America to survive are going to have to change, and that the churches that have been built upon fellowship, uh, built upon worship, those churches are going to withstand the changes that are happening in the United States of America. But the idea was, is that, is that the um, that is the, with the teaching pulpit and the Word of God, the idea uh, is that people can go online now and they can get the greatest teaching in the world on YouTube or anywhere uh, that they want, and so they don't really need that from a church anymore. And I listened to that particular podcast, and the guy that was doing the interview, he popped in with the very question that I would have wanted to ask, and it was very astute of him. And he asked the man who was giving these recommendations, he said, he said uh, related to this, he said, I know that the Word of God has never been more available in terms of technology. I hear that argument for de-emphasizing the Word of God in church services over and over again. But can you explain to me why, in the midst of all of that, biblical literacy is absolutely plunging? Yes, people have access to all of this great teaching that everyone talks about, but the fact of the matter is they are not accessing it. The changes that are happening, and this is more than a rant on my part, I want to commend to you that this is, as you would look at the book of Acts or look at any season in our Christian history in the United States of America, that this is what you are doing. What I don't want to see happen is over the next one year, two years, five years, ten years, that people like you get picked off one at a time, five at a time, from a room like this in a service like this. How many Sunday night services are going on in Modesto tonight? Very few. It's almost as hard now to get people to an evening service where God is uh, the sole attention of that meeting as it, uh, as it once was to get people to prayer meetings. Evening services are the next thing on the menu, and then it won't be long before the Sunday mornings are in the same way. We're in the middle of a terrible, terrible trend that is going on, and the importance of being alert to it around us, and not to drop down to the level of what we're seeing modeled around us. God deserves our life, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our life, all of our time, all of our best. We are to love Him with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. He is to be priority one, bar none, even over the big I, me, and myself that is in me more than any of you, and even above Christian service and what we do for our fellow man. It's, and it's almost a disgrace how he's treated and the rationale that is going on uh, to advance this and to keep that standard. And I speak especially to those who are younger in the room tonight, though to all of us. And 
to keep that standard biblical related to the Lord and to keep him the priority that he uh, deserves to be and, and ought to be in each one of our lives. And so I don't say to develop a critical spirit towards other Christians. Some people are listening to this online right now, and because they were sick, they didn't come to the Sunday evening, and they say, great, the one Sunday evening I don't come, he goes on a rant against me. I'm not talking about uh, you at all, but you just see how it just works. And I don't want to have a critical attitude towards this or this or this or this. I want to protect you. I want to protect you because this blows up in a way that you and I can't even believe. And we must have a Christianity that has its origin and its standard from the Word of God. And that is a muscular Christianity. That is a strong uh, Christianity, not one that panders to the culture and becomes the last thing uh, on our list every weekend or during the week or even in a given day. And I think it's not inappropriate to maybe extend an, an exhortation like this in the light of, of the book that we're looking at here in Jeremiah, where the southern kingdom of Judah gets off into a place that didn't happen in a day. It didn't happen in an hour or in a week or in a month. It was just this slow apostasy that occurred until they couldn't recognize what a relationship with God was supposed to look like in the light of the law and the prophets any more than many people do today. I think one of the most heartbreaking verses to me in all of the Bible is found in the book of Malachi. I can almost hear the, 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 the tears in God's voice as he speaks it through the prophet. And as they're bringing God these leftovers, these sacrifices that are lame, uh, these uh, leftovers of whatever they might give him financially or of their time and so forth. And God rises up through the prophet Isaiah and he speaks to the children of God, not the world, to the children of God. And he declares to them, I am a great king and you bring me this. Offer it to your kings and see what they would receive. The God that we worship is a great king. And one day when we stand on that glassy sea and we see the Lord for who He is, and in the presence of the Father, we will have wished to have a thousand lifetimes to give God everything that He is worthy of rather than frittering away the one lifetime we have with all of the distractions that are a part of the culture around us. Jeremiah chapter 33. And moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was shut up in the court of the prison. And so this is very near the end for uh, the, uh, Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the Babylonian uh, forces are at their gates and about to take the city there in the final uh, months and maybe final year before uh, they are uh, overwhelmed. And so Jeremiah is imprisoned at this particular point. And God gives him a message, thus says the Lord who made it, uh, the Lord who formed it and established it. Uh, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. He encourages Jeremiah 
Come to me with your questions. Come to me with your wanting to understand from my throne what's going on in the circumstances of Judah and life all around you as it's unfolding. And, and, and what he's saying here when he talks about great and mighty things, God says, I'll reveal to you great and mighty things, things you can't know in and of yourself. When he talks about which you do not know, that's the idea. Sometimes when we find ourselves in a, a great and difficult circumstance, and Jeremiah certainly finds himself in exactly that place, there's nothing wrong, and God encourages him and us to do it, to come to him and say, God, I do not understand what's going on in this circumstance. I don't understand the situation. How am I supposed to interpret it? How am I supposed to conduct myself in the midst of it? How am I supposed to uh, process what's going on? And we can bring that prayer to the Lord for understanding and, for, and to try and receive his revelation about what's happening in our lives at the moment. And he may or may not give us that revelation depending on what he knows is best for us. But we will never know what he might tell us unless we ask him. And so here is the invitation. Bring your questions to me. Bring your confusions uh, to me. I'm a God of revelation. I'm a God who speaks. Ask me, and I might tell you what you couldn't otherwise know. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city, and the houses of the kings of Judah, the great houses that made up uh, I I the rulers of, uh, of Jerusalem, which at the time were being uh, pulled down a stone at a time in order to take the stones and uh, fortify the walls in an even greater measure against the siege mounds that uh, Babylon was then bringing up against the walls and, and the sword that they carried with them. And they come to fight with the Chaldeans, speaking of uh, the Jews in, in, in Jerusalem. They come to fight with the Chaldeans in this way, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all, those, all for whose wickedness uh, I have not hidden my face from uh, this city. And so the, the absolute frenzy of of uh, uh, work that was going on to, the, to uh, extend the, the width of these walls and to, to bolster the defenses and so forth. And God says they're wasting their time. They're up against me. Until they're willing to repent, nothing they can do will be a defense against uh, Babylon, and all of their bodies are going to fall and, and be slain in the battle. And behold, I will bring, uh, and in, in the midst of all of this, he then shifts gears, and the Lord does what he's been doing the two previous chapters. He, all of this judgment is going to come upon Judah and Jerusalem, but he then speaks of a future that goes on, that will occur following their uh, conquest to, to the Babylonians, their Babylonian captivity, that one day they will return back into the land uh, of, uh, of Israel, possess it once again. But the prophecies that he gives here in the remainder of this chapter, it speaks to their return to the land, a beautiful promise given uh, how disheartened they will be in their captivity. You will return to the land following the Babylonian captivity. But this also has a far fulfillment, a far and fullest fulfillment 
uh, in speaking to the Jews of the coming kingdom age. When Jesus will return at his second coming, he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth and, and uh, reign for that thousand years. And so Jeremiah uh, brings a, a, a ray of hope in the midst of, uh, uh, of the, uh, the, the gloom and, and necessary doom of the messages that he has been delivering. Behold, I will bring it health and healing I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. I'm going to rebuild this city. It's going to be utterly destroyed, but the people will come back and rebuild the city. And I will cease... Uh, I, I will uh, cleanse them, rather, from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. And so God says that all of this is going to occur in their lives, in, in Judah, in Israel. They would come back into the land, be restored at a time when uh, finally health and healing and God's truth and obedience to His Word came to mean more to them than their sin. And God knew the day came, the medicine would be tough to take, but ultimately the day would come in which they would be more sick of their sin uh, and, and more desirous, rather, of, of, of peace and holiness and these kind of things from God, be sick of their sin and want to turn. We think about the, 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 uh, the younger of the prodigal sons in, in that parable of the prodigal sons in, in the New Testament, where he goes out, takes his inheritance, he blows it, and then finally he reaches a point where all he treasures is to once again be in his father's house, to have fellowship and a relationship with his father again. And all of it represents an individual's relationship with God. And once he had had his full of sin, once he had uh, reached the end and disgusted at what he had become under the influence of sin, then finally he turns from all of it and returns to what was his from the beginning, but he could never uh, fully appreciate it properly. And the same thing will happen uh, to Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel at the end of the Babylonian empire. God is very, uh, you know, whom the Lord loves, he chastens in order to bring us back into that place, both Old Testament and New Testament. And then it shall be to me a name of joy, speaking of uh, the, the land, the nation of Israel. It shall be a name of, of joy, a praise, and an honor before all of the nations of the earth. And who shall uh, hear all the good that I will do to them? They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for her. So Ju Judah is once uh, ultimately going to become a trophy of God's grace. How many of us, don't shout out or raise your hand, but how many of us in, in this room are just such a trophy of God's grace? raised around the things of the Lord, blessed with the things uh, of the Lord, go out into the world, get involved with all kinds of people. They knew that we once walked with Christ or we were raised in those kind of things. They then partook of us, uh, with us of sins and all of the depths to which uh, uh, we might go in those sins. And then one day the light goes on for us and we return to God. And then God restores us, brings us back to Him, changes our life, and then 
what happens, our life becomes a trophy of God's grace, a testimony to the greatness of God's love. What an encouragement uh, that it is. And uh, people watch our lives. They come to conclusions about God as a result of it both in uh, his seriousness related to sin, but also in the greatness of his love and of his, his willingness to restore and, and to uh, bless us once again. Thus says the Lord, again there shall be heard in this place of Jerusalem, of which you say it is desolate, without man and without beast, uh, speaking uh, of the larger uh, Judah, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, they were at the present time, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The entire land of, of uh, Judah is at this particular point in time. There are no animals out in the field. There are no people wandering from city to city. Everyone is uh, inside of the three fortified cities that remained outside of, of Babylonian control in Judah at this particular point. It looked like something out of a science fiction movie. It was so weird, so desolate, so uh, un, uh, unearthly. And, uh, earthly. And, uh, and so he says, you see it. You see what it is, a desolation. You see what it's become. And yet uh, one day the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, and the voice of those who say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return at the first, says the Lord. And so he uh, declares that one day the land would once again be uh, filled with joy, and it would be filled with worship to the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place which is desolate, without man and without beast, in all of its cities there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. Not only would the people return, but prosperity would return uh, to Israel. There would be uh, flocks, there would be uh, shepherds, there would be uh, herds, prosperity would be uh, restored in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin. In other words, the whole land from north, south, east, and west is going to be uh, filled with the joy of this restoration. Prosperity, once again, when the people uh, turn back to God in, in uh, fullness, in the places around Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. And so that's how they would count the flocks, as they put a narrow opening, as they would uh, put them through, and it would be one, two, three, four, as they would head through, and uh, there would be, the flocks would become so great, they'd become so prosperous again, it would require that kind of a way in order to count the flocks. It wouldn't be you'd go out in the field and go, one, two, three, four, five, got it, they're still there. Uh, but the flocks would be so great, you'd need to number them uh, in this way. And behold, the days are coming, and this is where the, the section of uh, the chapter that uh, shows us that uh, this uh, prophecy had a, a partial and a near fulfillment in their return from Babylonian captivity, but it, is, it yet has a far fulfillment for uh, the, the Jews and, and, uh, and Judah. Uh, in, because it describes here now in those same days when they are fully come, when this is the, the full uh, fulfillment of this, it speaks now of the Messiah who will be their king, Jesus, 
who should be their king today, but is not, by and large, for the Jewish people. Uh, but they will recognize him for the king and the Messiah that he is uh, at his second coming. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, both the north and the south, uh, the, the entire people of uh, of Israel. And uh, here he repeats a prophecy we uh, looked at in, in chapter 23. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. So he's describing the Messiah. He would be a descendant of David just as Jesus was that when he comes to rule and reign, uh, he will uh, rule and reign in righteousness, in absolute rightness. That's all that will be known on the earth is rightness. There'll be no drug deals. There'll be no buddy companies making money off of opioids. There'll be no uh, 12 and 20 and 40 people being shot on a weekend in Chicago or anywhere in the world. No drug lords, no drug wars, no cartels, none of this kind of stuff. There won't even be a need for police. There won't be a need for a military. And uh, the day is coming in which righteousness is going to prevail upon the earth. It won't be because we bring it as Christians, though we should be righteous in the midst of the generation that God has called us to be a witness in the middle of. And I think that sometimes the world and all of its evil, the evil people of the world, they see a diminishing of righteousness, the character, this kind of thing that uh, represents an open door for them and the expansion of, of their kingdom. And they kind of rub their hands in glee where they look and say, we can't be stopped now. I mean, look at the number of Christians. Look at how few people will make a stand for righteousness, even among them when it costs them something uh, to do that. No, the, 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 the wicked and the evil, the unrighteous of the world, uh, they will not be stopped and, and, uh, and upended by us. They will be upended because God will do it Himself. And one day, is sure, more sure than us sitting in this room, he is going to establish through Jesus perfect righteousness in this world. I don't know what they're going to report in the newspapers. He will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. That's one of the things that makes this, uh, it's a, almost an identical prophecy from chapter 23, uh, but there it spoke about him, uh, you know, executing judgment and righteousness in Judah, in Israel. Here, uh, the prophecy extends to the entire earth, and Jesus will rule and reign over the entire earth. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell uh, safely. So, you, you look at Judah, you look at the uh, northern kingdom of Israel, Israel as a whole today, you look at Jerusalem, and it's hardly a place in which uh, righteousness prevails perfectly or that peace prevails perfectly, but one day uh, it is going to come. That, that city is going to dwell safely because Jesus will rule and reign uh, from that uh, city. And this is the name uh, by which she shall be called. Uh, this will be the title given to Jerusalem in that day, the Lord our righteousness. And Jerusalem will be righteous, perfectly righteous, because her righteous king, Jesus, is ruling from that city. Jeremiah goes on and to continue to prophesy, for thus says the Lord, David will never lack a man to sit on uh, the throne of the house of Israel. Now remember, 
this particular point in time, Zedekiah is the king. He's going to be the final king of the southern kingdom of Judah before uh, Babylon uh, conquers the, the, uh, uh, Judah. And so it looks like when he gets conquered and he gets taken into captivity, it looks like all of the promises concerning this endless line of kings that would come from the lineage of David, that that's been destroyed. And yet God comes in and says, oh, no, it won't be destroyed. His covenant, my covenant with David uh, is uh, all uh, in place. Uh, he's never going to lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel because the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, from the loins of, of David in terms of his lineage, he will rule and reign there. And nor, he says in verse 18, shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. During the kingdom age, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, it is interesting uh, to realize that the, uh, many of the sacrifices will, uh, from the Old Testament will be offered to the Lord. Uh, there will, the, the priests will operate in their function. There will be Levites. There will be a temple during the thousand-year uh, reign of Christ. And for us as Christians, sometimes that can be confusing because we realize that the volume of the book, the Old Testament, it testified of Jesus. And, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. All, everything in there, all of the sacrifices, everything about the temple, everything about the tabernacle, all of the furnishings, all of it spoke uh, in terms of typology of the Messiah who was going to come and fulfill all of it. And so sometimes we can wonder, why in the world would God allow a temple to be rebuilt? This is Old Covenant stuff. Or to reestablish the priesthood or the Levitical uh, priesthood or high priests and so forth. Not high priests, but a, a priesthood and the Levites and, and reinstitute sacrifices as he talks here, burnt offerings and grain offerings. And the idea has to be, I mean, it's the best guess of, of anyone, and I certainly agree with it, is that somehow is that when these sacrifices and when the temple is there, all of the furnishings are in place and everything is operating, just as all of those things in the Old Testament testified as a type and a shadow of the Messiah who was to come in speaking to the church as a basis for our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that as much as that is a witness to us as Christians, when these things are reestablished during the kingdom age, Jesus, the fulfillment of it, ruling and reigning over the whole world and the Jews himself, then how could there be a more powerful witness to the Jews and a reminder of the typology that they missed by and large, that this was all about him? than to go through all of these things and to offer these things and to realize how in the world could we miss how clearly this spoke of Jesus and how we ought to have put our faith uh, in Him. So it will remind uh, people. Again, God isn't going to let loose of the Old Testament in the, in, uh, even in the kingdom age in the powerful testimony that it is to Jesus as the Messiah and the prophecies that were given uh, concerning him. Interesting to note that 
in that kingdom age. A couple of sacrifices are mentioned here that will be offered. The burnt offering, and that was an offering that was made morning and evening by the Jews. It was called the burnt offering because the entire offering was burnt upon the altar. All of it was burnt. Uh, most of the sacrifices, a portion of it would be offered to God, and then a portion of it would be given back to the worshipers or to the priest or so forth and all. This was completely burnt. It was completely offered to God, and it represented on behalf of the nation and any individual that would offer the offering for himself. It, it represented total consecration. Here is my life. I'm not giving you a part of it. I'm not giving you uh, most of it, minus my heart or my lungs or my mind or my guts or my bowel or my legs or my eyes. I give all of it to you. Morning, I begin the day this way, and evening, I close the day uh, this way. And that communication of the burnt offering and, and the consecration of our lives that God is due, that will be expressed in the kingdom age. And then the grain offering, which was one of the, the significant offerings that expressed thanksgiving uh, to God for His goodness and His provision. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night. If any of you try to do that, just try tomorrow. Or, you know, if we get out of here early enough, you might try tonight. Uh, just stand there and look out to the west and uh, command the sun not to set. And if you'd like us to video you and uh, put it on YouTube, how successful you are related to that, we'd be happy to do that. And, uh, but uh, here he, he talks and says, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night uh, so that there might not be a day or night in their season, then my covenant also, may also be broken with David my servant so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne with the Levites, the priests, and my uh, ministers. And so, uh, here is this, uh, God says, uh, this is going to happen. It, it, in, in the same way that man, you and I, have no control over stopping a sunrise or stopping a sunset, no one is going to be able to stop uh, this uh, promise concerning uh, the Messiah and uh, through David uh, coming to pass. We've already seen Jesus in His first coming. This speaks of what will happen in His second. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, speaking of the stars, nor the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who uh, minister to me. And moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken? Uh, saying the two families, this is speaking of Israel and Judah, the two families which the Lord has chosen, has he, uh, he has also cast them off. And that was the, the, uh, the conclusion of the nations that surrounded Judah and Israel. When they went in, each of them into captivity, the surrounding nations said, God is done with them, God is through with them, you'll never see them again, they have no future, and so forth. He has cast them off. And thus they have, uh, thus in, in speaking of God's people in this way, God declared, thus they have despised my people as if they should no more uh, be a nation before them. This is an interesting thing. God comes in and he defends his people here. And when he's like rebuking them very massively for who and what uh, they are. 
And sometimes when, when you see a child of God walk away from the Lord and go into the depths of sin and really make a mess of, of their life and, and so forth, and, and, and then people look at it and say, there's no hope. God will never have, you know, anything to do with them ever, ever again. I mean, that's done. No holy God would ever do that. And then God comes along, and if we're willing to repent and turn to Him, He brings us immediately back into His, uh, into His arms. And it's interesting how the world so often, they judge these things by the way the world would deal with things. One strike, two strikes, three strikes, you're out. You're done. God's not going to have anything to do with you. Uh, but uh, it is always, always to, ca- to, to look at any backslider uh, of God's people, even if it constitutes an entire nation, and to look at them and say, there is no hope for them. God will never have anything to do with them again. Uh, that assessment uh, by the world of a person is always to underestimate the greatness of the love of God and the grace of God. And that's what God is speaking here concerning them. Yes, they deserve the judgment that they uh, received, but uh, if you think I'm done with them, if you think I just punish to punish without having an end in mind, uh, then you don't understand me and you don't understand the grace I'll show them when they learn what their discipline is intended to teach them. And thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with the day and the night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, uh, so that I shall not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return and have mercy on them. And so the Lord speaks, and He declares there that uh, that all of this is absolutely sure. It's more sure than the sunrise uh, and the sunset. All of these things are uh, going to uh, come uh, going to come to pass for for them in both a near and a far uh, fulfillment. And so. Uh, a wonderful age lies ahead for the Jewish people. Uh, a terrible, terrible nightmare is going to precede it. But God has not abandoned the Jewish people. I'll tell you what it means to me. I love, I love the world. I love the people of the world. And, and uh, I love the Jewish people. And, uh, and I look at uh, what thin ice, outwardly speaking, you know, it looks like they're on in the world in terms of the world turning against them. Just, not just Islamic-dominated uh, nations, but the, uh, the nations of the world. And, uh, and yet, being founded in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, I watch all of that, and I say, listen, I've got, I've got 10,000 bucks to invest in this kind of thing. I'm going to bet on Israel uh, every single time. All of this is in Israel's future. He has not abandoned uh, the Jewish people. Now in chapter 34, uh, this begins now all the way through chapter 39 in earnest, the description of uh, the destruction uh, of the, the city of, uh, of, uh, of Jerusalem here. So this is the very uh, end, of, end of things. Uh, there is a little bit of a, uh, well, we'll get into it as, as we move 
into it a bit. The word which came to Jeremiah uh, from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all of its cities. And so, it's not only Nebuchadnezzar and his army come, the Babylonian uh, army, but also all of the armies of the lands that he's already conquered. This is an awesome thing. Sometimes if you ever see a show on TV, you know, if they've got a big enough budget and here are these people, they're, uh, you know, like <clears throat> uh, they're caught. It, all the walls are up. Everybody is inside of this city, and then it's just marauding masses outside uh, of the walls and so forth. This is very much the scene uh, that they were in. It is a sea of adversaries that surrounds the city of Jerusalem. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he uh, will burn it with fire. And so, uh, once again, Zedekiah is being told that escape from this judgment is, is inescapable. It is absolutely uh, coming. And you shall not escape from uh, the hand of the king of Babylon, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon, and he shall speak to you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. So you want to know the future, Zedekiah? Here's the future. You are not going to die in the siege that is going to occur and in the battle for uh, Jerusalem. Uh, but you're not going to be able to escape, as all the kings would do with their cabinet and so forth. Two or three days before the fall, uh, they'd head out some secret doorway and uh, make a dash for the Judean wilderness. He's not going to be successful in anything like that. Now, Zedekiah, you are going to be taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. You are going to look him right in the eye. Uh, you're, not going, you're not going to die, but you're not going uh, to escape. And yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword, but you shall die in peace uh, as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So you shall, they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, uh, says the Lord. So you're going to be taken captive. You will be taken captive to Babylon. You will die a natural death there. People will lament you in the way that they uh, lamented kings uh, in, of Israel in the Old Testament uh, and all. And that's what you're… I'm telling you ahead of time, this is your future and this is how it's going to all end for you. If I was Zedekiah, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> Not to die in the battle and then, and then to be taken captive and not to be killed by Nebuchadnezzar right on the spot and so forth. This is so much grace. And then that the children of uh, Judah would lament his death and get, offer incense related to it after the nonsense that he did in leading them into this catastrophe rather than uh, repenting. Sometimes people say, boy, I wish I could see some grace in the Old Testament. There's some grace for you in the Old Testament as if the entire Old Testament isn't grace. I was, was watching a, a debate recently where 
um, uh, what's his, Hitchens, uh, famous atheist now dead, and he's talking about uh, the hateful God of the Old Testament and so forth, and the, you know, more even-handed, kinder God of the New Testament and all, and, and, and how there's no grace that's shown in the Old Testament. I said, and I thought to myself, the whole history of the Jewish people is a testimony to His grace. I don't know what grid uh, that you read the Old Testament through, that they weren't destroyed completely a thousand times, and, and, and that we haven't been destroyed a thousand times individually in our lives. Now, there's a lot of grace in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left, uh, uh, that were left against uh, Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remain of the cities in Judah. So all of Judah is completely covered by Babylonian troops at this particular point. Only three cities, they were fortified cities, Jerusalem, uh, Lachish, and Azekah, they were uh, deliberately built to withstand. A, an invasion by a foreign army and for the population to then flee to those fortified cities in the hopes of waiting out uh, the, uh, the invasion. And only those three stood at this particular point in time. Ultimately, uh, Jerusalem is going to be the only one that stands in the end. And this is the word that came uh, to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all of the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim uh, liberty uh, to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in uh, bondage. And so, apparently, in the midst of this siege of Jerusalem, they realized they need more soldiers, they need more servants, and, and, and all of this. King Zedekiah made a covenant with the people that they would release their Hebrew slaves. Under the law of Moses, if I was a, I have a twin brother named Gabe, but if I found myself in some kind of financial difficulty and I uh, went into debt, say, $10,000 because the corn crop didn't grow or something like that, I wouldn't blow it on uh, Keno or gambling or a quick trip to Reno. Uh, uh, I'm going to blow $10,000 on trying to make $20,000 uh, the old-fashioned way. Uh, so, but if I did lose that kind of money and I needed somebody to bail me out so I wouldn't lose my land, I would go to Gabe and I would say, listen, can I sell myself to you as your servant and you as my brother uh, to work six years in order to work off this debt, my labor going against that, so at the end of the six years I can be freed and then go back to my land and give this another shot. And it was, uh, it was, it was a, a, really a compassionate way in, in which debts could be uh, handled and dealt with as much as possible within the family so property and so forth didn't move between families and, and, out, uh, and tribes and so forth. And so when someone became your servant, even if they weren't in your family from someone, another family, they became your servant as a Jew, you could, they, you could only have them as a slave or a servant for six years. And then the seventh year, the law of Moses declared that they had to always be released on that seven year. There was uh, seventh year. There was no keeping people uh, indefinitely as Jews in, uh, in, in slavery.
slavery. And, and so uh, now they've got these slaves. They have uh, ignored God's command to release their Jewish uh, brethren as slaves after six years and to do it on the seventh year. They're ignoring that like they're ignoring every other command that God has given to them. They're holding on to these people, just like you go, you know, maybe to Mexico or some other part of the world where somebody's got the servants and then they've got the company store and you go in and you got to buy the tortillas and the beans and the rice and so forth, but they've jacked the prices up so much that you're more in debt now this, this week than the week before because there's no supermarket at all. And they just keep you in the bondage all the way through. Um, in, in that way. And there was that, that kind of a handling of, uh, of the people. But here, as, as things get acute, they need more bodies to uh, have a sword, more bodies to man a spear and so forth, or to bring water and, and move stones and all of that. So, uh, we don't really know whether it was solely out of a need for more soldiers or uh, maybe they just had kind of a momentary concern for the law of Moses. Maybe if we keep this, God will come in and deliver us from from uh, the Babylonians if we obey just this little area uh, uh, of the law of Moses that it will turn this, uh, produce a miraculous deliverance from this Babylonian uh, invasion. But whatever the motive was, they did that. All right, all of us slaves, uh, we covenant now with Zedekiah, and we're going to see in a moment that they made this covenant with God, not just with Zedekiah, but they made this covenant to release their slaves per the law of Moses before God in the area of the temple. And uh, what they were doing was, uh, again, in in, uh, obedience to uh, the Lord's uh, Word. And then, uh, verse 10, now when all of the princes and all of the people who had entered into the covenant, they heard that everyone should set free his male and female servants, uh, slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and they let them go. And then we're told in verse 11, but afterwards they changed their minds and made the slave, uh, male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. It, it does appear likely, as we uh, are going to learn in uh, chapter 37, that what happens here is that the slaves are released per the law of Moses and a covenant made with God. And this, as soon as they release the slaves, in the light of the acuteness of this Babylonian siege mounds against the city of Jerusalem, uh, somewhere off to the south, uh, Egypt comes up out of her land, and she becomes, begins to rattle her sabers in order to uh, pull the Babylonian, Babylonians away from their siege upon uh, Jerusalem. And so Nebuchadnezzar pulls his army in large part away from the siege of Jerusalem. He takes his army down to the south in order to do business with the Egyptians. He puts them in their place. But during this window, when the Babylonian army leaves, uh, the people look and said, what in the world did we set our slaves free for? I, I mean, here the Babylonians have gone and all, and so uh, what have we done? We need those slaves. They're the ones that, you know, prosperous and so forth. And so they went right back and pulled them by the neck and brought them back into, their, uh, into the slavery once again. 
as soon as they weren't uh, under the, the pressure that they, had, uh, that, that they had once felt. And it tells us that their motivation for releasing the slaves had nothing to do with the law of Moses or honoring God or anything like that. It had a, a 100% to do with the pressure is on us, we need to do something desperate. But once the pressure was taken off, then uh, they, uh, they pulled, uh, pulled back and, and showed their true colors. There's no concern for God, only a concern uh, for themselves. The trouble is that the Lord watched all of this, and therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from uh, the, uh, uh, came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I've made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrews." A brother who has been sold to him, and when he has served uh, you six years, you shall let him go free from you. And so God reminds them of his law, but your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. And then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight. I don't know how many angels in heaven uh, passed out and fainted in the shock of this uh, upon seeing them do something finally right, but God said, you recently turned and finally did one right thing in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty uh, to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. So they went and they made a covenant before God. God, we promise that if you'll deliver us from these Babylonians and so forth, and we love you, and we're going to keep your word no matter what you say, and we're releasing our slaves and, and so forth. And they, uh, they did this uh, farce of, of, of this commitment uh, even in the area of the temple. They drew God into it. And then you turned around and you profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure, brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Think about it if you're one of those slaves and you get set free. All right, man. I may I look like I'm going to die here, but I'm going to die a free man or a free woman in this and then this turn of events occurs, and then they take you back in. How disheartening. God describes what they did here uh, as basically repenting of their repentance. They should have repented of their disobedience to God's commandment. Now they repent of their repentance, and, uh, you know, that was one repentance that they shouldn't have done. And he describes it in verse 16, this change of heart that they had and their actions. He said, you've profaned my name. And what he's saying there is, you have dishonored me before the nations and before uh, the world. And uh, profane in the, in, the, in the ancient world, and as it's used in the Old Testament, and even has the same implications in the New Testament, the, wor the word profane means to be common. It means to be non-holy. And so he said, what you've done here is the world has, has uh, watched it, is you have demonstrated to the entire world that your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel and Judah, is not worthy of keeping your promises to. And that's how God views this kind of thing. They'd given their word, and then they turned, it, uh, turned back on it, and it communicated something to people who were watching. 
And therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, and I will deliver you uh, to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf into and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. I mean, the whole land was involved in this covenant, and, and, they, uh, and they violated the covenant. Now, when he talks about the sacrifice of the calf in the ancient world, what they would do is if, if, if you were going to enter into a covenant with somebody else, a contract, an agreement, an animal would be sacrificed. It would uh, generally be cut right down the middle, and half of the animal would be on, laid on one side of a path, and then half of it on another side of a path. There would be a walkway between it, and then the two people that were making the covenant would walk between uh, the two halves of the sacrifice. And it communicated a seriousness uh, about uh, the agreement that we're entering into. It also had a warning side to it. And the idea was that if either one of us fails to keep that covenant, may we become like the calf that is cut in two on either, uh, either side. And God said, this was the covenant, this was the imagery, this is what uh, you entered uh, into the leaders and all of the nations, uh, people of the nation themselves, and I will give them, verse 20, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth, and I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. Uh, and basically, Jeremiah was saying, um, he's, they're coming back, uh, folks. Behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Just another way in which God communicated to them, uh, I'm in control of this situation. Your problem isn't with, uh, supremely with the Babylonians. It's uh, much more serious than that. Uh, you're up against me in, in all of this, and that's a battle that uh, nobody can win, and they couldn't win uh, either. One of the things that this teaches us here in chapter 34 as we uh, wrap things up in, in terms of them giving their word to God, and we're going to obey, and we make this promise, we're going to release the, the slaves and, and, and so forth, that uh, it, it teaches us that we, we should never make promises to God in, in the heat of some kind of circumstances that we, we find ourselves in. We should always obey His Word, but when we find ourselves in some kind of a difficult situation, we should never make a promise to God that once the heat is off, we will then uh, renege on that, on that promise that we have made uh, to, uh, to God once the heat gets turned off of our lives. This, of course, is a very, very common game that is played 
uh, with, uh, between uh, people toward God all of the time. To this uh, very day, a crisis comes, uh, occurs in a person's life, and it makes us reconsider some area of disobedience within our life that we're, uh, that we're living, and then the cry goes out, God, if you get me out of this situation, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. I'll give you everything, and, and I'll, nev- I'll always be in church, and I'll tithe, and, and I'll, you know, serve in every area that there's a need, and, and I'll witness to people and read a thousand chapters a day of the Bible and, and for the rest of my life. And then what happens is then the pressure releases, and the person goes right back to their former uh, behavior. And it's an indication that, uh, that there was no real sobriety related to God. It was just, I wanted to get out of the squeeze of, of the situation, and, uh, and the commitment wasn't a real one. And this teaches us very importantly that we're to obey God in our lives when the heat is on and when the heat is off, uh, that He is uh, worthy of that, that kind of, of obedience. So let's stand together and we'll close in prayer on a worship song tonight.